Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, part two of the murder of Lena and Tommy Peterson. But first, your true crime headlines. A Southern California high school student opened fire on his classmates, killing two and injuring three more before turning his gun on himself. The shooter, a student at Saugus High School, walked into the school's quad area at 7.30 a.m. and pulled a 45 caliber handgun out of his backpack. He shot several students before using his final bullet to shoot himself in the head. A 16-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy were killed, and three other teens were injured, but will survive. It is believed that the shooter fired indiscriminately on nearby students and that the victims were not individually targeted. Classmates described the shooter as a quiet kid who kept to himself but was not threatening. He was a Boy Scout, an athlete, and a good student. A neighbor described the teen as struggling since the sudden death of his father in 2017. A pregnant mother of two was killed and her husband injured after the couple heard their car alarm go off and stepped outside to investigate. 29-year-old Misty Smith Walton was a devoted mother of two boys, aged 8 and 11, and was six months pregnant with her third child, a girl. Misty was the president of her younger son's elementary school PTA, where she was well-known and described as an incredibly dedicated mother. The school has brought in grief counselors to assist the students in processing the tragedy. Smith Walton and her husband heard their car alarm go off around 8 p.m. last Saturday and were met with a hail of bullets when they went outside to check on the alarm. She died at the scene, and her husband was also shot and was transported to the hospital. Their unborn child did not survive. Neighbors in their East Oakland community described the apartment building as a safe one and expressed shock and disbelief at the shooting. Oakland police are searching for the killer and have offered a $15,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in the case. After more than two days of deliberations, a Pennsylvania jury has found Sean Kratz guilty of first- and second-degree murder in the 2017 deaths of three men on his cousin's Bucks County farm. The jury convicted Kratz of first-degree murder in the death of 19-year-old Dean Finocchiero and voluntary manslaughter in the deaths of 21-year-old Thomas Mayo and 22-year-old Mark Sturgis. All three men had gone to the farm to purchase marijuana. Instead, Kratz and his cousin killed them and attempted to burn their bodies in a pig roaster. Kratz's cousin, Cosmo DiNardo, previously confessed to the murders and is serving a life sentence. Prosecutors had requested that he testify at Kratz's trial, but DiNardo rejected their subpoena. Kratz initially pleaded guilty to third-degree murder and was offered a sentence of 59 years in prison. But he later withdrew that guilty plea and said that it had been coerced by his former defense attorney. He now faces either the death penalty or life in prison. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of Lena and Tommy Peterson continues. But first, a quick break. Have you thought about talking to someone? 
but are unsure of where to start, it's time to get BetterHelp. BetterHelp makes it easy to connect with a licensed professional counselor, caring professionals specializing in the issues that you want to talk about, such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and more. Join BetterHelp and get help at your own time and your own pace. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video and phone sessions or text your therapist worldwide and start communicating in under 24 hours. Anything you share is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. It's a truly affordable option. And now, Murder Minute listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code MURDERMINUTE. If you've been wanting to talk, you can get started now. Go to betterhelp.com slash murderminute. Simply fill out the questionnaire and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash murderminute. If you're like me, your health and beauty routine is an important part of your everyday life. And it's not just about looking fabulous and keeping fit. For me, self-care is a ritual. A moment in my busy day when I get to relax, take a break, and treat myself to a little bit of self-love. So I'm always on the hunt for quality new beauty products to mix it up and keep my routine fun without breaking the bank. That's why I subscribe to FabFitFun. FabFitFun is self-care made simple. Boxes are delivered straight to your door, so I don't have to find time in my busy day to go shopping when I could be enjoying a bubble bath. And these aren't just samples. Each seasonal box comes with 8 to 10 full-size beauty, fitness, home, and wellness products from your favorite brands. A $200 value for the luxurious VIP price of just $49.99. Just visit fabfitfun.com and curate your own box. And if you want more beauty for your buck, become a member and get up to 70% off exclusive products. My favorites in this month's box are the Dry Bar Prep Rally Detangler, the Coffee Body Scrub, and the appropriately named Yoga Calm and Clean Lavender Body Wash. Give me anything coffee and lavender, and I'm in heaven. And guys, if you're wondering what to get your lady for the holidays, FabFitFun will help you treat your special someone by sending them an e-gift card so that they can customize their own box and experience the joy of discovery all year long. For $10 off your first box, visit www.fabfitfun.com and use the code MURDERMINUTE. That's $200 worth of full-size beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products for just $39.99. Shipping is free. Treat yourself to the gift that keeps on giving. Visit fabfitfun.com and use the promo code MURDERMINUTE. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, we continue the tragic story 
of Lena and Tommy Peterson. By Tuesday morning, April 16, 1902, the trail was 38 hours cold. A pack of four dogs, one full bloodhound, the other three foxhound mix, were brought to the scene of the crime. Mayor Brenton, Police Chief A.R. Brackett, Polk County Sheriff George W. Mattern, Chief of Detectives William T. Maitland, Assistant Chief John P. Peterson, and Detectives Ed Walsh and Eli Hardin accompanied the dogs to the murder site. Eli Hardin called, quote, one of the most experienced and best-known detectives in the West was brought in to work the case. For 20 minutes after being released on the scene, the dogs did nothing. The handlers took the dogs away and back again, hoping that they would perform better. The dogs were released a second time, but again failed to find a trail. Eli Hardin then placed Lena's clothing on the ground. Immediately, the dogs responded to the scent. Two were released and ran across the field toward the swamp, following the same trail discovered by police the day before. But like the police, the dogs lost the trail at the swamp. Their handlers took them back to the murder scene again to sniff the clothing. This time, the dogs started across the field, through the marsh, and then to a road where they paused, crossed, and stopped at the door of a house. The dogs were taken back to the swamp and started one final time. This time, they went straight across the road where they had first stopped, then went to the east of a house at the intersection, continued south, then west, and then south again until they stopped on a gravel road, losing the scent again. Investigators concluded that the heavy street traffic had destroyed the scent trail left by the killers. They called it quits at 5 p.m., and the handlers brought the dogs in. Investigators were disappointed. The dogs did not go north to the mining camps, where many had believed the suspects would be. The trail the dogs followed was the route of someone who would have been familiar with the area, someone who knew how to avoid houses and roads. To make matters worse, the dogs had caused such a spectacle that word quickly spread through town that the search for the killer's trail was underway. A crowd of onlookers gathered around the scene as the dogs were brought in, causing such chaos that Mayor Brenton himself had to order the citizens away from the scene. Warden W.A. Hunter of the Anamosa Penitentiary, which kept a pack of bloodhounds to track escapees, told the Des Moines Capitol reporter, quote, The way the bloodhounds were used in the Peterson case was not only amusing, but it was absurd to expect any good result therefrom. The dogs undoubtedly did the best they could, but they had nothing to work on, and instead of tracking the murderers, very plainly, they tracked the children themselves or whoever had carried the children's clothing with them. That afternoon, 
Iowa Governor Albert B. Cummins issued an executive proclamation, a $300 reward for information in the Peterson case. He later raised the amount to $500, equivalent to around $14,000 today. The reward was conditioned to be payable only on conviction of the guilty party, to prevent people from falsifying or holding back information for personal gain. The press spread outrageous rumors that a kinky hair was found in Lena's hand, that two men followed the children from Waters' restaurant, that a sandy-haired man was the killer, and a lame man was involved, that the trail of the suspects was followed for eight miles. But Billy Waters, who owned the restaurant where Lena and Tommy were last seen before their murder, debunked a rumor that two Highland Park College students had followed them out. There is no truth in that story. I cannot imagine where it came from, he told the press. The children were in here about 9 o'clock Sunday evening. They had just come from church. Several other people had come in before them, also from church. There was no one in the front room of the restaurant but the children and myself. In the next room, I think there were three couples and a young man who were sitting at tables. The children had nothing to say. They bought some coconut candy and some bananas and then left in the direction of home. Nobody followed them from here. And in fact, no person left the restaurant for at least 20 minutes after they had gone. No one followed them into the restaurant either. Gossip was also beginning to spread about Peter Peterson. People speculated that he was mentally unbalanced and that authorities were now investigating the family's home life. But Wesley Day and Dr. William Beck, who gave Peter Peterson the terrible news of the deaths of his children on the night of the murder, said that Peterson was sound asleep when they arrived and that they had to call him twice before he finally woke. Over the next few days, the murder scene became a sideshow, attracting the curious and amateur detectives. One person drove two stakes into the ground where the bodies of Lena and Tommy had been found and posted a white paper marking the spot. The paper was quickly ripped apart, a small piece at a time, by souvenir hunters. As hundreds of amateur detectives took it upon themselves to search for clues, the crime scene was trampled over and over, destroying any hope of finding the killer's trail. To gain access to the area, the crowds even tore down a section of barbed wire fencing and threw it into the field. All that destruction worked up a thirst, so the early true crime junkies decided to stop at a house to ask for a drink. They could have stopped at any one of the houses along Madison, but they chose the home of the Petersons. In his grief, Peter Peterson himself worked the pump and handed out glasses of water to the strangers for several hours, shaking hands with anyone who offered. 
According to the Des Moines Daily News, Peter Peterson openly grieved with the gawkers. Tommy, Tommy, I cannot stand this terrible agony. When I go into the house and I see the little fellow's overcoat, bought a short time ago, hanging on the wall. When I sit down to the table and see the absent places of my poor dead children. When I look at the vacant chair where little Lena sat and think of the terrible death she suffered, it almost drives me mad. I would give my everything if only I had them back, if they could only return to me. And if this had not happened, I could be happy. Peterson blamed his wife, Mary, and said that he was so against the children going to church that night that they had left in secret. I did not want them to go, but their mother believes in sending them to church three times a week and on Sunday, Peter told friends. I do not believe in it. I told her to keep the children at home. She did not obey, and now they are dead. 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 Dead when I thought they were home safe in bed. It's all her fault. She is responsible for their death. I cannot stand it. It's awful. On April 16th, the Peterson family held a brief, private service for Lena and Tommy in their home. And at 2.30, the two caskets, piled with flowers, were placed in separate horse-drawn hearses and driven to the Highland Park Methodist Episcopal Church, where crowds had been gathering all day. Lena's classmates, Eloida Preston, Elvis Spebbins, Alice Kinney, Margaret Great, Fern Gordon, and Kate Donovan carried Lena's casket. Howard Nichols, Theodore Warsh, Arthur Yarn, Grover Welch, Freeborn Smith, and Clarence Carlson carried Tommy. 900 mourners filled the church, and the windows were opened so that a thousand more outside could hear the service. After the service, the caskets were carried to the vestibule near the door, where the congregation viewed the bodies as they exited the church. Then, the back door was opened for the outside crowd, who filed past to view the dead children for 45 minutes. Lena and Tommy Peterson were calm and beautiful in death, the Des Moines leader wrote. Their fine and delicately molded features told eloquently of the innocence and loveliness of character that had been theirs during life. After the ceremony, the hearses carried Lena and Tommy to their final resting place in Pine Hill Cemetery. I leave it all in God's hands. It must have been his will, or the crime would never have been committed. Mary Peterson told her mother and Reverend Griffith. We poor mortals cannot understand God's ways. My greatest grief is that any human being could so far forget God as to think of such a crime. In my prayers I pray that the murderer may find God before it's too late. Reverend Griffith told the Des Moines Capitol, it is better to die like Lena Peterson fighting for her honor than to live longer and be ruined by a deceiver. 
After days lost pursuing black men on baseless rumors and meaningless clues, the authorities finally reconsidered the crime and its motive and developed a new profile for the murderer. Des Moines Chief of Police A.R. Brackett had a new theory. The killer was not an outsider, but likely a white man that the children knew. Someone who lived nearby, was familiar with the children's schedule, and understood the lay of the land, so that he could commit the act unseen and cover his tracks. The killer also, Brackett believed, had a motive, which the Des Moines Daily Leader echoed. Quote, Probably if the truth could be learned, the children recognized their assailants, called them by name, and threatened them with exposure before the crime was committed. Now that the profile of the killer was a white man, detectives backtracked on their initial statement that Lena Peterson had been raped. Despite the fact that they themselves had not examined the bodies, physicians with access to the autopsy report began to express different opinions from those of doctors William Beck and M.M. Smith, saying that the conclusions in the post-mortem were inconclusive. Private investigator Thomas Pennington concluded the murderer was insane or crazed with drink, or perhaps made insane by prolonged use of liquor. Police then focused on the Petersons' neighbors looking for any taint of insanity in families. On Sunday, April 20th, all Des Moines area ministers preached on the tragedy to packed churches. Some preachers blamed lax morals or lazy and corrupt police work. One minister predicted that the cause, when discovered, would, quote, prove to be whiskey. That afternoon, police got a new lead. When a young boy from the Peterson neighborhood brought authorities a rusty 18-inch long gas pipe with blood and grass on it. He said a man gave it to him and whispered, this is the most important clue yet found. Police showed the pipe to Lena and Tommy's brother, Willis who claimed that he'd found it the Tuesday after the murders in a pasture near the scene. He said it appeared to have been embedded in the ground for a long time and that he threw the pipe into another field, thinking that it was just rusty. Authorities asked Willis to direct them to where he found the pipe. In the grass was a bludgeoned snake, which police decided probably accounted for the blood. On April 23rd, when asked by a Des Moines Capitol reporter how the family was coping, Miriam Peterson said, Papa still takes it very hard. It seems that he cannot bring himself to realize that the children are dead. Every morning when he calls us up, he goes to the stairs and calls Lena and Tom, just as if they were sleeping sweetly in their bed. On April 30th, just over two weeks after the murders, Peter Peterson appeared at the Des Moines police station. 
he accused police of negligence and expressed anger and resentment that there had been any speculation that he was involved in his children's deaths and alluded that he might commit suicide. The Des Moines Daily Leader reported the incident. Quote, Since the murder, Mr. Peterson has been, to a degree, suffering from mental unbalance. He broods almost constantly over the loss of his children and said yesterday that now that they were no more, he did not feel he had anything to live for. He left the police station greatly troubled that he had been unable to get any information concerning the murders. Nearly five months later, on September 5th, Constable Ed Sunberg and a Polk County Deputy Sheriff went to the Marcusville coal mine and arrested 28-year-old miner Tom Lewis for the rape and murder of Lena Peterson and the murder of Tommy Peterson. The murder warrant was sworn out by Des Moines attorney H.G. Hodd Carpenter, who claimed that he had worked the Peterson murders nonstop since they had occurred. Carpenter claimed Tom Lewis fit the profile. He lived near the crime scene. He told conflicting stories about where he was that night and was near the scene of the crime with two companions at the time of the murders. As the trial of Tom Lewis began, enormous crowds packed the courthouse. The Des Moines Daily News reported, quote, white men, colored men, white and colored women, babes in arms, some of them wailing miserably, surged and stewed in the fetid atmosphere of the room. The courtroom was so crowded that it was impossible for witnesses to move through the crowd. The judge was forced to clear the courtroom of all except court officers, reporters, relatives, and friends. Tom Lewis was calm at the proceedings. A brother sat behind him, and family members surrounded him with love and support. Mary Peterson testified that Lena had never been called on by Lewis or been on any kind of romantic terms with him. The doctors who performed the autopsy, Beck and Smith, both now testified that Lena was not violated and that the blood clots found in her vagina were from her period. Thomas C. Morningstar testified that at the crime scene the day after the murder, it was mentioned the murders occurred about 9.15, and that he heard Tom Lewis standing nearby say that it could not have been true because he and his buddies, John Carlson and George Williams, were in the area at the time. Morningstar admitted, however, that Lewis made the statement without trying to conceal anything. Noma Spear testified about hearing the cries that led her boyfriend Ralph Peck to discover the bodies. William Jones testified that he saw three men, one Tom Lewis, leave the Lewis home at dusk the evening of the murders and heard a girl holler to them, don't stay out too late. Jones also said that the pump brace at the Lewis farm had been missing and that Tom Lewis told him that he was buying two guns, 
one for his own protection and the other for his sister. On cross-examination, Jones said that he heard the three men about 8 p.m., but did not see them go east on Madison, and admitted that the gun conversation happened after the murders. A local resident, Gordon Bowlby, testified that he had taken it upon himself to investigate the murder the day after the crime. Bowlby said that he followed two sets of footprints and that they led him to Tom Lewis's back door. The prosecution asserted that Tom Lewis, being a small man, wore a small shoe which fit exactly the footprints leading away from the scene. They aimed to pin the murders on Tom Lewis, as well as his friends John Carlson and George Williams. The shoes of Williams and Carlson were introduced, and the prosecution claimed that they matched the trail of the two men found at the scene. Detective Eli Hardin held up the pump brace, purportedly from the Lewis pump, and proclaimed that this was the murder weapon. James Connor testified that he was staying with the Petersons that week and that on the Saturday after the murder, he ran into Tom Lewis and Lena and Tommy's brother, Willis Peterson, standing on the road. Tom Lewis, he said, was explaining how George Williams and John Carlson could exonerate themselves. The three men talked about the size of shoe prints leading away from the scene. Carrie Munson said that Tom Lewis told her that he and two men were on a bridge near the murder scene that night. Another amateur detective, William Murray, testified that he too had followed the trail from the scene and found tracks leading to Tom Lewis's home. Murray stated that he later saw Tom and Harry Lewis and remarked that it was a good thing their sister had not accompanied Lena that night. Harry Lewis said she didn't because she wasn't ready. And Tom said nothing. Dan Carey, one of the men who had discovered the bodies, was a miner at Marcusville with Tom Lewis. He testified that Tom Lewis did not come to work the day after the murder. Bit by bit, defense attorney Walter McHenry took apart the prosecution's case. McHenry claimed that Tom Lewis left his home about 8.45 that night with his friends George Williams and John Carlson. The three sat on the bridge mentioned, close to the murder scene, and they talked about a horse they saw in Algona and parted company around 9.15. The Lewis family provided an alibi for Tom for the rest of the night. Tom Lewis went upstairs with his sister, Nettie, whom he shared a room with, divided by a small curtain. Nettie testified that she heard Tom throw his boots on the floor and crawl into bed. She lay awake for some time and said that she did not hear him leave. The father, David Lewis, was described as, quote, slightly under the influence of liquor that night, so the mother stayed up late to care for him, and she too testified that Tom never left the house. 
The defense then elicited testimony from officers William Brothers, McNutt, and W.T. Maitland that they covered the same ground before witnesses Bowlby and Murray, but saw no tracks leading to the Lewis residence and believed that the two amateur detectives had followed a trail made by police, not the fleeing murderer. On Friday, September 12th, Justice Egbert E. Islesworth dismissed the charges against Tom Lewis and released him from custody. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald wrote, quote, Lewis went home last evening a very happy young man, and a family jubilee was held at the Lewis home near the residence of Peter Peterson. The police were disappointed, not in the outcome, but that no further information came out of the trial to help the case. Many believed that Tom Lewis was tried not because police believed that he committed the murders, but because he knew who did, perhaps Williams and Carlson, with whom he was on the bridge. Police hoped that putting Tom on trial would make him squeal on his friends, but he did not. Many citizens were furious that time and money was wasted on the trial. The Molten Tribune wrote, quote, The evidence against Lewis was purely circumstantial, which might have been adduced against any person who was in the neighborhood of the crime at the time of its commission. The newspaper called the trial a huge joke and observed that no one in the courtroom except attorney Hod Carpenter and a few alleged detectives took the trial seriously. A month later, on October 13th, 1902, Peter Peterson requested that a grand jury hear evidence on the murders of his children. Peter claimed that he, quote, had been so bothered by the repeated visits and inquiries of alleged detectives and hawkshaws that he wanted the matter sifted and settled for one and all. Supported by Detective Eli Hardin and Night Captain Al Miller, all of the facts of the murder were again repeated and testimony was taken. And on Halloween of 1902, the grand jury ruled that there was not sufficient evidence to warrant any indictments. The Peterson case went cold for nearly two decades. Until a new suspect emerged in July of 1921, when 72-year-old Mary Peterson revealed a terrible secret that she had been keeping for almost 20 years. Mary confided in her pastor, Reverend D. Winfield Thompson, that it was her son, Willis, who murdered his siblings, Lena and Tommy. Reverend Thompson informed the authorities. And on July 27, 1921, Willis Peterson, now a wealthy farmer living near Blairsburg, was arrested and brought to Des Moines to answer his mother's charges in person. But within days, Willis was released the sheriff told the Associated Press that Willis's elderly mother, Mary, was suffering from an illness and that 
her mind was affected. Although law enforcement believed that the accusations against Willis Peterson were the product of an elderly woman's demented mind, Willis had always been around the edges of the investigation. Willis claimed that he found and discarded the bloody pipe, which was briefly suspected to be the murder weapon. There was also the witness at Tom Lewis's trial who claimed that he saw and overheard Willis conspiring with Williams and Carlson about how they could establish that the shoe prints found at the scene were not theirs. Willis also fit the profile. A white male who lived nearby, knew the children and their schedules, and was familiar with the lay of the land. Perhaps Willis resented their father's favor for Tommy, or lusted for his sister Lena. And perhaps their mother Mary Peterson suspected Willis from the start. If Mary believed that one of her other children had committed the murder, it might explain her forgiveness of the killer and her prayers that God have mercy on the murderer and forgive him. In 1923, Peter Peterson died at the age of 78. His wife, Mary Hoffman Peterson, passed away four years later, in 1927, aged 77. They were buried near Lena and Tommy in Pine Hill Cemetery. James Willis Peterson died on February 23, 1936, at the age of 58. He, too, was buried in Pine Hill Cemetery, near his parents and his murdered siblings. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, Download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Murder Minute. This week's story was primarily sourced from the incredible research done by author Nancy Bowers. For more information on this crime and others, visit iowaunsolvedmurders.com.